Hello, and welcome to Mother Daughter Earthcast, a show that will help you navigate the eco world and live a more colorful and conscious life. We'll inform, inspire, and embolden you. And most importantly, we'll have fun along the way to a more planet-caring lifestyle together. This individual blade of grass right in front of me, it kind of feels my sorrow and pops some energy at me, for lack of a better word for it. And it feels like getting hit in a good way by a ray of light. It's a foreign language. Put your hands on the tree. I'm very interested in ecological history, which looks at how different human cultures force ecosystem change. Human beings have done so much to destroy nature on so many levels in so many ways. If you want to heal nature, plant a native plant. Welcome back to Mother Daughter Earth Cast. If this is your first time joining us, thank you so much. We are so happy to have you here with us. My name is Mariana Archibald. And I'm Jenna Woods. And today we are chatting with the most amazing and magical person ever, Melina Simple Watts, the author of the most awesome book named Tree, an inspiring book. It is. Life-changing book. (laughs) Yeah. It is written from the perspective of the tree. The tree is the main character. Of a 229-year-old California live oak, to be more specific. And yes. And we're we're not going to give anything away, but this book literally made me feel like I had a friend in in grass. (laughs) Just Melina's perspective and her way with delivering a message and telling a story it's honestly life-changing I'm not I'm not just saying that lightly I I look at grass differently now Um, after our conversation with her especially I look at energetic exchange with plants differently now she and and this is not something I haven't spent time thinking about either I mean this is my world this is my jam but Melina has such a magical way of telling that story and bringing these as she mentions sentient beings alive for us too you know oh she's magical she gives plants a very unique perspective and a voice There you go. She gives plants a voice for us. Not that they need us to give them a voice, but she really bridges that gap between plants Mm -hmm. and us. And she's kind of, she's the translator as you'll hear more in the podcast. She's, She's the translator for them, which I think is, it's amazing. So we can't wait to share that conversation with y'all, but mom really wanted to talk about something first the birds (laughs) her birds which by the way we released episode one of our bird class on patreon a couple of weeks ago because mom has spent a lot of time and a significant amount of money (laughs) upping her bird game and even had a professional come to her house and do a bird assessment of her yard yes this is true this is not made up And so we're doing an episode every season and sharing that with our Patreon community on how you can create a bird paradise in your yard. Yeah. And this has been like a what, like a four year thing, two year, two year journey for you? No, I'd probably say close to four years. There you go, guys. Y'all are getting the distilled version from my Madre, which is 
let me tell you, hard to find. (laughs) This is it. She took four years down to several minutes. And then I even condensed it further and gave you what you really needed to know in through the video editing. So (laughs) yes, it's I've always wanted to learn about birds, but didn't know that much. And what my uh, landscaping business partner, Karen, and her husband, John, gave us our first bird feeders and about four years ago. And it's been a journey. I, I've learned so much. I want to keep learning. And yesterday, Marianne and, and I were in my office, and I have five bird feeders right outside my office window and a bird bath. And there were, what, dozens and dozens and dozens of dozens. Oh, it was just fascinating to watch them. Goldfinches, to be more specific. Yes. And literally, I had to keep telling my mom to stop looking outside and to focus on what we were doing because we we're trying to get work done. But we did take a little bird watching break. Yes. And then I have a bird feeder off my kitchen hanging in some wisteria. And I can only put that bird feeder out there during the winter where the birds can find it because in the summer, there's too many leaves. I can't find it. And I there's this one particular robin who loves to sit on that bird feeder and knock all the seeds out. <laughs> Actually, I only have safflower seeds on in that bird feeder because the squirrels don't eat safflower seeds and the squirrels were eating all the seeds, which I don't mind feeding squirrels some, but not just squirrels. So anyway, I have safflower seed in there and this one robin every morning comes to that bird feeder and sits there and knocks out all these seeds so they could fall on the porch and then the robin and all the robin's friends come and eat the seeds off the porch. So they prefer to eat the seeds off the porch. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Isn't it though? Inter- I wonder which Robin said like, okay, this morning I'll take one for the team and knock off all the seeds. No, I think uh, that particular Robin loves making a mess. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. We, so unfortunately we had to move our bird feeder to another tree because about eight months ago, six, seven months ago, In July. yeah, um, our neighbor's tree fell smack down in the middle of one of our crepe myrtles and this was the bird feeding crepe myrtle oh really yes because it was right in front of our porch and so that's where we would sit and watch all the birds and anyway we've moved it so they now have a new little home but I miss sitting out and watching the birds come because when the weather was nice and it was beginning of COVID and we would just sit out in the front porch and watch them, we knew that there was these um, cardinal couple <laughs> and it was the the female and male cardinal and they would always have their little dance and the card, the male cardinal will go get a seed and bring it to the female. And she was like, nah, not good enough. Go get me another one. And so there he would go. And the female was like, I'm over this and fly away. And the male would fly after her and then they would come back. Like It was so cute to watch. So anyways, hopefully this coming spring, we can do more bird watching in our front yard. It's so entertaining. It's so soothing and it's really a great yet another way to connect with nature. I know. And when you're there every day, it reminds me of that documentary of the octopus, my teacher. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he was definitely committed. But when you 
sit in the same spot in front of the same tree every evening, you really do get to know <laughs> the birds that come and eat from your bird feeder. And yeah. it's nice. So in, anyway. In fact, I'm looking at my bird bath She right is. Now, she's distracted. And there's a cardinal getting a... a Quenching his thirst. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, well, before we move on to our amazing interview and chat with Melina, we, of course, would love for you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It really, really helps us get our stories and messages out to a wider audience. So if you haven't already and if you enjoy listening to what we are putting out there, then we would really really appreciate if you went and did that. Thank you much. And of course, we have more awesome content on Patreon for our community members there. And Melina this week, y'all, she she's amazing. And in the Patreon bonus episode, she goes deep dive into plant communication. She does. Oh, and she has just changed again my perspective on that. I mentioned it earlier, but she and my mom kind of swap stories on how they communicate with plants and it's super cute. And I'm like the one left out a little bit, but then Melina brought me back into the club. We love Melina. Anyways, if you are, are all interested in hearing about plant communication and just super just candid conversation about it, head over to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash mother daughter earth. Of course, there's other awesome bonus episodes, but this one is particularly moving. So anyways, Melina, we can't wait to go have lunch with you someday in LA when COVID restrictions have been lifted. You are such a wonderful person and a kindred spirit. And y'all, will enjoy this conversation so much. She is amazing. So thank you again, Melina, for spending the time with us. And without further ado, please welcome Melina Simple Watts, the author of Tree to Mother Daughter Earthcast. Welcome back to another awesome episode of Mother Daughter Earthcast. We are here with the amazing Melina Semple Watts, who is the author of Tree. And it is such a magical book, to be honest. And my mom and I have had such a fun time reading it. Before we get carried away, Melina, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with us. I love your show, and I'm so delighted to be a part of it today. Thank you. Thank you. And we have actually already had the pleasure of having a little chit chat with Melina a couple of weeks ago. So I feel like we're already friends. And so this makes it so much better. But I think kind of kindred spirits. Kindred spirits. Yes. <laughs> Mom and Melina went off on a tangent about Mexican cooking and living on ranches. <laughs> so we've yeah. gotten all the kindred well, actually- spirit out of the way. The way you're wearing your hair today with the part in the middle and pulled back, it's totally classic ranchera. Like you look, you look like you're ready for your horse with the silver reins to gallop past me, you know? <laughs> See, Mom? See? The little, I'm, I'm with it. <laughs> anyway, Melina, we obviously want to talk all about you and your amazing book, Tree. And to get us kicked off, can you tell listeners a little bit about you, your background, and how you were inspired to write your book, Tree? Well, I will. Um, I grew up a, a number of different places, like a lot of people. And then when I was age seven, we moved back to California to a place called Topanga. 
And at the time, I thought Virginia, where we lived for two years, which had a stable with beautiful horses that I got to ride, um, uh, was this perfect place. And I was kind of like uh, shocked by how different the ecosystem was and the culture. And I just, you know, I felt very uh, dispaisé, right? So um, that first night, I went to sleep in our brand new house in a a, and a, um, a tract home, uh, think early Spielberg, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like the houses in ET. Um, <laughs> I heard coyotes in the mountains, mm. right? And I had thought coyotes were like something that happened to Laura Ingalls Wilder. You know, I mean, I thought they were like, really, you had to live out in a ranch or something to have that. And so realizing that these coyotes were like right outside my house was so exciting. And I woke up and I looked at the mountains in a new way. Right. Because I realized we were living in the middle of a wild place. Mm. And there's this experience uh, when you're a kid, if you if you aren't being introduced to native plants along the way, where you drive through nature or walk through the woods and it feels magical in this sort of all coming in at you at the same time, beautiful way of different colors of green and brown. And and, and it's almost like more than you could take. Right. Mm. And then at a certain point, if you choose to start uh, upping your game and learning the names of the plants and learning their life um, histories, right. And how they interrelate and getting the ecosystem, it's like becoming friends with them. Like you start to get to know them and you start to see how they fit in together. And the more, you know, about an individual plant and the next plant and the next plant, the more the ecosystem becomes this incredibly rich, um, story of all these lives interrelated living together at once. And so my story of growing up Topanga is really the process of me falling in love with that ecosystem and that community. Right. Um, and, uh, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. And I'm just like starstruck right now (laughs) because it's so funny. This came up during a recent interview where the realization that as a child, I think I w- my life has kind of been inverted. As a child, I, I did grow up in nature and I was surrounded by it. We grew up on a ranch in Mexico as we were talking about the other day, but I was so self-absorbed <laughs> and just so focused on like dressing up and painting myself with glitter and like doing all these other things that n- nature, I I didn't necessarily feel that strong connection that I feel like is easier to feel as a child, except for my rock collection. But it hasn't been until I've been older that I've really like that kind of magical feeling of taking it all in and really feeling connected to the native ecosystems has happened to me. And so I always love hearing people's experiences as a child, because for some reason, that just wasn't my personal experience. Even even though she was out in nature I was. All, all the time, all, the, all time. the time. And my mom would take us hiking and whatnot. And I was just walking, you know, just not taking <laughs> anything in. <laughs> you know, what my, my thing is, I don't think any of us can say what even you can say what you were taking in. That's true. Because it was so a part of your life that you took it for granted in the same way that a happy kid takes their mom or dad for granted. Right. Cause they're just there and they feed you and they're awesome and whatever, you know, you're busy. That's true. You know? And so um, it's almost like you had to get removed from nature to go, Oh my goodness, there's this hole that I'm missing. What is it? Oh, it's you. And then you turn around and see nature in a different way. Right. That's it, Melina. Melina, you literally just like plugged a hole that has been in my life for a long time. I think (laughs) you're genius. I like to, I would love to think that it's true. I think it's true. Awesome. I think it's true. 
Okay. My next question is, you know, you had this awesome experience with your native ecosystem and, you know, the Topanga area. How did you get the idea to write a book from the perspective of a tree as opposed to, and it's something that you have talked about in some other interviews from a biocentric perspective as opposed to as opposed to an anthropocentric perspective. <laughs> that was a mouthful. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, maybe you picked up on it from me talking about moving to, to California when I was seven um, and a lot of moving as a child. Um, I was a little bit shy and I made friends, but I, the, you know, the, the constant changing of schools and things, um, I was often really lonely, right? Mm. And so when you're lonely, your heart is sort of forced open by the loneliness. And, the you know, they say the crack is where the light comes in, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I feel that that uh, allowed me to feel plants and animals when I was outside walking because I was in such deep solitude that it just poured in and I felt uh, mutually in love with, mm-hmm. right? The, oh. the the ecosystem of the Santa Monica Mountains where I grew up. So, um, when I was in high school, um, I went to the all-girl high school in Marlboro, which is the oldest school in Los Angeles County, mm. or the oldest private school in Los Angeles County. And um, there were a lot of really smart, interesting people. So I, even though I didn't do that well academically, I had a very intellectually and emotionally rich life there, right? And then all my friends, I am not kidding you, every single one of my friend group moved to the East Coast because there's this misbegotten idea back in the day that the good schools are all over there. I'm a UCLA girl, so I beg to differ. But <laughs> anyway, the point is, I um, ended up my freshman year down at UC San Diego before I transferred. And, you know, this is before emails and before Facebook and before cell phones. And I didn't even have a phone in the dorm. So if people didn't write me a letter, it was like they'd been wiped off the face of the earth. Right. Mm-hmm. So I get the occasional letter because people are, you know, they care, but they're busy because they're all trying to get that blasted 4.0. So here I am, <laughs> like, alone. I had a fabulous roommate, actually from Tijuana. Hmm. Um, in San Diego, she'd grown up both back and forth. Um, and she was away for three or four days. And I was just feeling, uh, you know, super, super disconnected from other people, super abandoned and alone. And I'm walking back to the dorm and it's a Friday night and it's going from sunset to dusk into dark and music is pouring out of the dorms. And I have no date, no party, no real deep friendships to connect to, no letters in my mailbox. And I really can't take it. I've also realized I'm never going to be a doctor because I'm terrible at math. Mm. Um, And I had thought that that would be a way to give meaning to life, you know, to help people, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like thinking, you know, what am I doing? Why am I here? Who cares if I'm here? If I can't even be like even a tiny bit content I didn't know how much more I could take this. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that kind of depressed downward spiral of really, really feeling this dark siren song of suicidalness. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just couldn't go inside. So I lay down on the grass and it was like this big quadrant, a very ordinary green lawn looking just, you know, large lawn surrounded all four sides by all these um, big dorms full of people who were not me. And I thought, you know, I can't, I can't give in. I can't give up. My dad, would die if I died. So that was like my lifeline, you know, Um, but it wasn't, still didn't feel like enough to like get me through the night really, you know? Yeah. So while I'm lying there, this individual blade of grass right in front of me, it kind of feels my sorrow and pops some energy at me for lack of a better word for it. And it feels like getting hit in a good way by a ray of light. And I was completely startled and I, I kind of, emoted back at the grass and said, gosh, hello, you know, 
and and the grass kind of felt energy at me saying i'm here and i care and I love you. And I was overwhelmed. Like I had tears in my eyes. I couldn't even take it. Right. And then the two grass next to it, it told them and they did the same thing. Then they told grass next to it and the same. And it went from two to 50 to a hundred to a thousand to 10,000, a hundred thousand. I don't even know, but the whole field of grass at this point is showering me with love. It's like finding out an orchestra is playing a song just for you. Do you know what I mean? It was overwhelming. And I just was, it was the most ecstatic experience of my life. So I lay there like just ebullient, joyful, loving, connected. And I'm trying to emote back and say, thank you. I love you. I hear you. I'm with you, you know? And I lay there and I lay there and I couldn't break the connection until finally it got so cold. I was having trouble feeling my fingers. And, <laughs> and I basically said, you know, I love you. Goodbye. <laughs> and I went inside to my room and it kind of stayed with me for, for my life, you know? And, um, I tried to get a career going in Hollywood, whole different story, save it for another day. <laughs> and um, I had gotten a fabulous job working for the Kennedy Marshall Company, uh, as in Kathleen Kennedy, as in she's doing all the Star Wars movies you're watching right now, right? And I'd left them because the Disney funding ran out was the official reason. But the other reason was, you know, they just cycle through people and they were done. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And so I ended up with this job that was just not a good fit. That's a charitable way of putting it. Um, my boss made more money than anybody else in the company. So everybody had to love him, but he was a screamer and he was a cusser mm. and he was always, you know, either charming or upset. There was no middle ground. And I was like, whatever, I'm just going to do my job and take it. So I was an assistant that he could lean on and I wouldn't fall apart. So in his weird way, he really liked me, you know, mm-hmm. but it was up the sixth floor in this office with no windows. Uh, well, there were windows in his office, but not in my office. Of course. <laughs> so he got, I, I got him his lunch with a big shot, hopeful new clients. And he took them to Spago's in Beverly Hills. And I knew there'd be like, you know, you know, 50 year old bottles of wine and God knows what. And that he was gone until he was done with him and then he'd go home. But I had to sit at that stupid desk till 6 p.m. And I really had done all my work for the week. So I'm sitting there feeling like, oh my God, can I take the boredom? Like, honestly, right? And all of a sudden, that memory of that field of grasses, spirits of those grass, for lack of a better word, was like, remember us? Aww. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do. And then, um, then they, they, they just kind of retreated, but they put themselves in me. And I thought, have I felt this before? And I remembered going to Yosemite Institute twice, once in eighth grade and once in 11th grade, and these giant trees and the redwoods and feeling the trees in the same way I'd felt the grass, but a completely different language on a different scale. And I thought, you know, for people who aren't as um, out there as me, it's easier to hear a tree than grass because trees are really loud. Like even the least connected person to nature, you drop them in the middle of the redwood forest and they're going to come home saying, oh my God, right? Every single time. Right. No, I thought, well, I can't tell the story of a redwood. It's too big. It's too long. It's not me. And then I thought, oh, my God, my favorite tree, California live oaks. Mm-hmm. I've grown up with them. They've always been my friends. I'm going to tell the story of a California live oak. Oh. And then it upwelled in me literally the whole story in about 30 seconds. The whole thing. Like, there's pieces of change, et cetera. But I've, I, I, I had the, the Schumacher era, the Ranchera era, the Yankees 
the new Hollywood money, the, the ending, mm-hmm. like all of it came. And I, all I, then all I had to do was research it. Right. So the next three days I wrote like crazy. It was the most joyful experience of my life. And then on around Monday or Tuesday, I thought, you know, I'm going to need to do some homework. <laughs> There's so much science. Like how, what is you know, how does an acorn sprout? How big is the tree in six months or a year? What are the other plants doing at this time? What is the Shumash language and culture? What it was, is it Tongva or Shumash in Topanga? That's a hot topic. I mean, all of it, right? So there was a lot of research and that was a long answer, but you did ask. Oh my gosh. That was such, I think the most beautiful answer we have received on one of our podcasts ever. I know. And Okay, I know mom has lots of questions, but I have a follow-up question. <laughs> Darn it, I wanted to get my question okay, in Okay, well, you can, you can. <laughs> but I, but it, actually, it's more of a comment, Mariana. I just love how you explained how Univervia, the uh, the Mexican uh, sprinkle grass, is one, of, is one of the main topic, or one of the main characters in your book. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering how you had chosen a grass to be one of the sweetest, kindest, gentlest. Oh, yeah, and a tearjerker. Yeah, characters. Yeah, the that that section made me cry. I'm not gonna give it away for anyone who hasn't read the book, but if you know, if you have, you know what I'm referring to. The fact that I could feel so much of, you know, care and emotion towards grass was was truly a work of genius. So you definitely brought that through in the book. And I love hearing the backstory, as you were saying, Mom. Yes. That was a great comment. Okay, so go ahead, Mariana. My (laughs) follow-up question, which I... Was there a question about Univervia that we slipped past that you want to be answered? No, it was more of a comment that I'm glad to now know how you... Yes. how you came up with Univervia. Oh yeah, where where Univervia was born. Yeah, you just explained it. Um you just mentioned something really interesting because by the way, in the bonus episode for listeners, Mom and Melina are going to talk more about, you know, how they experience communication with nature because Melina, I don't know if we told you in our last conversation, but mom had to come out of the nature speaking closet too. And that was, that was a process. I was like shoving her out, (laughs) (laughs) but you were just saying something really profound. And I wanted to touch a little bit more on it where you were describing if you put anyone in the middle of a forest, they're going to come back and say, Whoa. And you were implying, I thought that anyone can hear trees and communicate with them. But I want to touch on that a little bit more because I would say the average person, if they do go into a forest or on a hike, can come back out and not realize that what they've experienced is a form of communication with nature, right? They can come back feeling happy and nice and maybe a little energized, but what people don't realize what's happening. So what do you, can you expound a little bit on that and say, you know, what is the line between receiving, communicating, or just being in nature? Do you think it all happens at the same time and people just aren't realizing that there's that energetic exchange? Or do you think it just happens differently for different people? It's going to sound like I'm changing the subject, but I'm not. Okay, go for it. (laughs) We're here to learn from you, Melina. You take it wherever you want. So I have a son who's going to be 25 in February. And when he was at Our Lady of Malibu School, um, which is a teeny tiny Catholic school that didn't care that we weren't Catholic, bless their hearts. (laughs) Um, 
they had a marvelous Spanish teacher, but they only had money to have her teach like 20 minute classes two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. So when you only give a kid 20 minutes of Spanish two or three times a week, you're lucky if they learn how to say yes, no book. <laughs> and what they learn at the end of a year of barely touching Spanish is that, oh, I'm an idiot. I can't learn a foreign language. Mm. They're just it's, 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 it's worse than nothing, in my opinion, like either go for it and commit to a solid hour a day or solid two hours a day or just stay home. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like this American pretend um, uh, throw a couple words at your kid in a foreign language and think you've done your job like no. Right. Yeah. So, um, when Vincent was uh, going into um, ninth, uh, let's see, yeah, ninth grade, he got into the school viewpoint school, which I had actually gone to back in the day. Um, and, uh, they had him do, um, a, a day in the life of kind of all the classes he would be taking. And he was completely opposed to it till he did that. And then he came home and he's like, okay, I'm in. Right. <laughs> um, but one of the things we experienced on that day was this wonderful guy, uh, Monsieur Vanderbrook. I think he was Belgian, but he was our French teacher and he was super charismatic and he took all the parents and the kids. And I, of course, knew some French, so I didn't say anything because I didn't want to spoil the fun. Right. Mm-hmm. And he did like back and forth and back and forth. And he got them to answer questions in French and understand his basic questions and actually do like, you know, baby French stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. In the first hour of class. And Vincent came out with his eyes this big and he's like, <gasps> you know, like he was, he was transformative, like he was going to do it. Right. And so cut to the chase. Um, you know, junior year, he gets to go to Europe abroad and he has this experience where there's this really charming guy who's um, from North Africa, who's an immigrant, who's selling, who's his age, right? Who's selling sunglasses on the street and speaks horrible French and Arabic. And Vincent speaks no Arabic and so-so mm, French. And they were able to become friends because oh. they could get along in their fractured mm-hmm. French together. It was beautiful. It was transformative. Oh. Like he came on like that was worth it, right? <laughs> So my point is, you take someone who thinks I can't speak tree, grass aren't talking to me, and you need a you need someone who's Mr. Vanderbrook, yeah. who can sit with them and go, okay, I get it. It's it's a foreign language. Put your hands on the tree. Do you feel if you sit there and you say nothing and you sit there long enough, and it's not winter where things are frozen and barely moving at all, but it's summer, right? Maybe even better spring. You can feel the sap moving up and down the tree, mm-hmm. right? And then you put your hands out in the sun and, and you talk about photosynthesis and you imagine your, your hands as leaves photosynthesizing. And you think that you're making food from light. You're making, and you start like trying to connect to what the tree is doing and feeling and touching the tree and being open to the tree. And you may start to hear it. And I think a lot of times people are so stuck on hiking. I'm going on a hike. I'm going on a walk. I'm moving. Mm-hmm. When you're moving, you're not a very good listener to, to plants, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. What you need to, you maybe some people are, I don't know. But to me, you need to sit still, be quiet and be receptive, right? And uh, the other trick is, you know, plants communicate electrically with each other, mm-hmm. right? So there's this yoga trick where you put your hands like you're going to do the, you know, the, the, the Thai bow thing we you put your hands like together mm-hmm. you put your hands together and you rub them back and forth until they get really hot right <laughs> and then you put them just an inch away and you go back and forth and you can almost feel like uh like a tiny ball of energy between your hands mm-hmm. right when you get that feeling of energy if you go out in the forest with that energy between you've made from friction your hands and you put your your hands out and then you sit still 
it may be that you can actually feel energy coming to you and from the trees. And so people have to try different routes if they want to, but the, the act of opening mind, body, heart, soul to the possibility, you know, someone else's access may be completely different than mine, but mm-hmm. I can offer them things that have worked for me. Um, and so that's where, you know, I think there are other people other than me who teach, who teach how to communicate with plants that are a better Monsieur Vanderbrook than, than I am. <laughs> well, you're a pretty wow. awesome one. <laughs> you explained it so well. You did. And we're going to get more into that into the bonus episode. But I want to pivot. But I'm going to let my mom ask a question first. Because otherwise, <laughs> I'm just going to hoard Molina to myself. <laughs> no, I um, love how you make people think of how the world is not about just humans, how we are all interconnected and we're all supposed to live together and thrive together and nourish each other. And that was such a beautiful message from your book, Tree, which I have never read a book that has that perspective. Yes, that's the key. You have brought the, a message that, you know, we hear a lot, but from such a unique perspective that it just hits home. I loved it. Okay, we're going to pivot a little bit because Molina, y'all, majored in history from UCLA, as she mentioned. And so one of the things that I loved about the book as well is that it weaved those little hints of history, even though it was all from the perspective of a tree and viewing history from the perspective of the tree, you really brought that history aspect into it. And I'm going to read a little passage from her book, Tree, because I think this was my favorite one, because it really, this was the part where, to me, it kind of hit home that we're looking at life, not let's let's look at life and events, not just from the perspective of human beings, right? And so this is the t- this is to give listeners a little bit of context. It's placed. Um, we're now in the time when the first um, Spanish conquistadores, well, like <laughs> conquistadors, like come to the area, and this is the first time they've kind of like been to where tree is. And this is a little bit afterwards, but. It's on page 87 for anyone who has the book. And it says, and, and the Spanish had left like a trail of mustard seeds, which was super interesting. I'm sure it, you find can that just, little nugget. Yes, can please. I just interject? Yes. I was taught when I was becoming a naturalist and guiding walks for kids and families that that's a true story, that the congestors left a trail of mustard seed to find their way back to the boats. And I found out years later that that's ahistorical. So that is literally the only fact <gasps> in the book that I can't commit to as being God's own truth. <laughs> well, it's one of but my favorites. But it's favorite. such a great story that I'm like, I have to use it. I have you have to. to. I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you did. Well, I'm sorry to point out the one fact, <laughs> but it was one of my favorites. <laughs> but I also feel like, you know, for all of us who grew up with, you know, Frank L. Baum and Judy Garland and Wizard of Oz, it's the Yellow Brick Road. Yeah. Yes. And just the imagery, it was, it was perfect. So anyway, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. I totally interrupted. No, please. I'm so glad you did. As a reader, I think I'm going to totally give you a pass on the historical accuracy because I like to believe that this is what happens too. But anyways, on page 87, this is a little passage that really struck me. And it says the mustard path would give the Spanish a roadmap made of plants of the way to go back after a season of exploration. Tree spent a lot of time that summer looking at the new biota, 
the new grasses, entire communities of plants bent and retreated before these invaders. Mustard, oats, radish, the world was forever changed. A new color yellow, a new color green, a new world. Man, that just really struck home because we, we learn about that whole part of history, a literal genocide and cultural genocide and, and complete overtake of what was there. But we only learn about it from a human perspective, which was mm-hmm. tragic. Don't get me wrong. And it's massive what happened. But this was the first time, Melina, that I had thought about that time in history from the perspective of what was happening to the ecosystem and the the plants and animals and not just from a large, like high level, like, oh, they came and clear cut the forest and you kind of gloss over it. No, but it made it real. It made it like it really struck home and it made it feel like what the what the indigenous communities were feeling the plants were feeling mm-hmm. also. So I'm going to let you comment. <laughs> that was just something I wanted to point out for listeners. Like this is how impactful some of the, the, the book in, as a whole is, but especially some of the passages were for me. It just, I've never, as someone who feels very connected to plants already, the way you, you worded it was, was magical. So coming back to an actual question, <laughs> I would love to hear, I, heard a question there, but that's okay. <laughs> I would love to hear more about, how the journey was for you to weave in that historical aspect and then kind of bring that into, again, from the perspective of the plants and yet make it historically relevant and bring all of your historical genius into the book too, because that's a big part of it as well. It's not just plants. Well, there's two kinds of mainstream history that inform this book. There's you know, history, like you, t- you would learn it in school, right? Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in California history and uh, the First Nations people's um, cultures I tried to understand so that I could really ground that part of the book. And I was really blessed that a Shumash scholar um, agreed to read the book, the first part of it, and give me notes on it. Mm. And I'm not allowed to mention her name because she has her own book coming out and her agent says she can't be affiliated with any other books. Got it. Um, (laughs) The draft I got back from her came back with a lot of red. It was super humbling, right? And um, her comments were so profound because she commented that I had mixed up some elements of um, the Mexican and South American experience of conquistadors with what was happening in also California. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, father, um, I don't know how to say Juniper in Spanish. Uh, well, he was, he's, he's, he's was heavily romanticized in earlier eras to, to, as, you know, a founding father, of California. And now people are like, yeah, they basically enslaved the Indians at the missions. It was awful. Mm-hmm. Right. But when they first came, they were giving presents and they were trying to communicate and they're, are oh, we going to teach you about the Bible and it's all going to be good. You know? So it was like, so that first contact wasn't terrifying. It didn't get terrifying till later. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So she said, no, 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 no. You got to take away the fighting. Mm. That's not what happened there. It happened in other places, but not there, you know, which was very helpful. And um, she was very pleased with something I did get right, which is when the Spanish came, they they traveled with um, not just the horses they were riding, but also cattle and other species, including pigs on the hoof, because they weren't sure what they'd find wherever they were. And they thought, well, if we have grazing animals with us, we'll just 
kill them as we go so we won't starve to death, right? Mm -hmm. And so the pigs got loose and bred. And the problem with this wild pig phenomena, invasive species, right, is almost uh, certainly in the area that I'm talking about in California, but many areas of California, the backbone of the Native American economies, plural, because they're all different nations, really, from their own perspective, Mm -hmm. um, was acorns. And acorns are far healthier than corn or rice or wheat because they're high in fat and they're high in protein compared Mm -hmm. to regular grains, right? So they would, if everything else went wrong in the world, as long as there was acorns, they, they, they could hang in there, right? And one of the interesting things about the use of acorns by First Nations peoples is they had favorite kinds of trees. But if there was a bad year of the mast, which is the name of the crop, right, the other trees would often overcompensate. It was really interesting, like different ty- different kinds of um, weather conditions favored certain trees. So you had a backup plan. So it was fabulous. But then the pigs came and to a certain extent, the cattle as well, they ate all the acorns. Mm. So when you look at how quickly the um, missionization process happened, again, think of it as kind of enslavement, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because they were starving because of the stupid pigs, mm-hmm. which I don't think was intentional on the Spanish part necessarily. Yeah. I've never heard that it was, wow. but it made it made everything else, accelerated everything else, right? Then the other part of history that, that drives the book is um, I'm very interested in ecological history, which looks at how different human cultures force ecosystem change, right? And you know, the people who study this stuff are crazy smart because they know all the history stuff, but they also are like massive science geeks. So as an example, when you look at what you're talking about with um, that part of the book where the ecosystem, the grasses change, mm-hmm. they're saying that when they go and they look at um, the bricks of the earliest missions that we have, the earliest adobe homes, mm-hmm. and you pick it apart and you look at the pollens and you look at the seeds, it's already like something crazy, like 95, 98% European species. Wow. Really? Yes. In other words, they think that that process happened literally before the Spanish got off the boat. And they're saying that the, um, the grains that were like dropped on the, on the boat that the birds ate and, you know, defecated in the woods, Mm -hmm. they took, they were so well suited for where we are. They took off that fast and, and they, they dominated. And so it is, it is an ecological tragedy that it, that it happened, you know, so quickly. You, you talk to botanists in California and they're like, yeah, we know a lot about, you know, this forest system or the chaparral system. But when you look at the, the native grass, like, uh, like this in the savanna or in the grasslands, they're like, we're not totally sure. Because it's so dominated now by European, we can't totally recreate what we think it was. We can guess. Isn't that fascinating? But they're all in they're all in 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 a tiny minority position compared to what they would have once been. Interesting. That I was at a native a native plant society meeting one day, and there was this gentleman who had written a book about the native plants of the prairies in Texas. And I bought the book and found it fascinating. And there's this one, I I can't remember the name of the plant right now, but there's this one plant that is very showy, gets really, really tall. And I happened to see it at one of my my customers' homes. And I said, oh, that is the coolest native plant. I just saw this in a book, you know, that I bought at the Native Plant Society. Well, I go and I read about the book and they said... Oh, yeah. Um, It was used by the Romans, the big stick that it puts forth with the flowers up at the top. That was used by the Romans for torches. And I was thinking, 
I don't remember any Romans <laughs> being in Texas. But the point is that they that plant had been brought back, brought over to Texas so many years ago, it is now considered a native plant. And whenever I speak to people about native plants, I always talk, you know, it's there's there's a gray zone there many times, isn't there? Well, there's a lot of controversy about that. I mean, I definitely know a lot of scientists who are like 100% native or else. And then a lot of people are more like, if it's pretty, I'm good, you know. Um, with it, When you talk about prairie grasses, I'm really intrigued by some of the best remnant prairies are two places. Do you know the answer? Well, is Dallas one of them? Because we have the Blackland well, Prairie here. <laughs> Actually, I, I meant, I, I'm sure it is. What I meant was uh, if you're in any area in the Midwest, where are you going to find them? And the two that they consistently find them are cemeteries. Oh. And then the other one is um, the places where they put aside land for the railway. Mm, because interesting. They, things, they, kept, they had to fence out the animals. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So people who study them go there first. That's really interesting. In fact, yeah. the closest black land original Blackland Prairie near our home is attached to a cemetery. In fact, we had a photo shoot there. We did. Uh, and it's just the plants there are amazing. Yeah. yeah. Interesting really that you mentioned that. I've never been on prairie lands. I would love to see it. I mean, come over know. to Dallas. I would love to. Where we put, we put in the Dallas plug anywhere we get. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So we're going to need to be wrapping things up and you had so many interesting, thoughtful messages in your book, but is there one takeaway that you really want people to have when they finish your book? And in addition to that, is there anything in general that you would like to share that we haven't asked or that other people who interview you about your book haven't asked, but you really want to get that message out there? So either from your book or just in general. Well, there's two things. Um, one is that the way that history is taught in California, and I would presume elsewhere in America, but I've seen it here to kids, they teach it like a layer cake where there's the First Nations people, and then there's the Spanish came, but then they become Mexican, and then there's the Yankees, and then there's us, whatever us is, right? And um, what I discovered from my research was, um, first of all, it was never that simple, right? Mm -hmm. Because the First Nations cultures was as complicated as a map of Europe times a hundred mm -hmm. because you had, you know, 400 languages or something unbelievable. I think that's right. Um, and each of them had, you know, stories and, and relationships. And the average person back then spoke maybe six languages. Mm, so it was wow. very, wow. expectation was that you would be able to travel and connect and deal with people near you, right? So then when you had the... Um, the, the Spanish came, the first settlement in Los Angeles, they listed them by ethnicity, and you can see it posted in Alvera Street. Um, it's actually in the tiles. And more than half of them were African descent and or Native American descent. Um, and, other, and very few of them were, you know, Spanish only, and many of them were mestizo. Mm -hmm. So California's always had a much more complicated um, rainbow of history than, than is acknowledged and those cultures are still alive and present and a part of our, our our current reality and they make us who we are this wonderful melange I, I joke that it's like more like 
instead of like a layered cake, it's more like confetti cake where it's all mixed up together, right? And yeah. I hope that that comes across in the book, that feeling of the joy of all these cultures all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that I would say is, is the most important thing, if you take anything from this book, is um, human beings have done so much to destroy nature on so many levels in so many ways. If you want to heal nature, plant a native plant. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. And it's true. It's the so first true. step. It is There's so a lot true. of other stuff to do, but it's always the, the best first step. Well, this segues into our final question, which mom asks all of our guests. So it might be your answer, but you might want to add something to yeah. it. So mom. So Melina, what is the most important thing that you think each individual can do to help reverse global warming? We need to stop being so self-centered and being anthropocentric and us, us, us and people and oh no, and start thinking of the whole of nature and the whole of the world. If we care about other plants and animals as much as we care about our own children and our own future, we will do the right thing. I love that. So true, Melina. You nailed it. Melina, you inspire me. You make my heart go (laughs) pitter-patter. I love that. It's so true. It is. You na- really that it it that's it. It is. And it's one of the reasons so we've mentioned this in podcasts before but just, you know, wrap things up but one of our main messages as mother daughter earth this year, the first one is connect with nature because when we started looking at everything we had learned about living sustainably and all of the awesome things, we really were like how do we boil it down? And the first one had to be connect with nature because you can't protect something you don't care about and you can't care about something you don't feel a connection to. Right. And that just goes, you said it so much more eloquently, but it's so true. I mean, you, we, we have to think just even think and consider beings that aren't humans when we're making our decisions and it all starts there. And then from there, everything else can grow. So, oh, Yeah. You love it. You'll save it. Yes. Melina, thank you so, so much. You are inspiring. Your book touched me in so many ways. And everyone go get a copy of Tree by Melina Simple Watts. It's amazing. And it is really life changing. It really is. So thank you for being with us and for spending the time to chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Kakinas. Gracias, and thank you. Yes, yay. (laughs) Thank you for your time and your expertise, Melina. We're very blessed to have you on our podcast. (laughs) Until next time, Melina. Melina.